Learning for Life at Gustavus is produced by J.J. Aiken and Matthew Dobosensky of the Gustavus Office of Marketing. Will Clark, Senior Communications Studies major and videographer at Gustavus, who also provides technical expertise to the podcast, and me, your host, Greg Castor. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Gustavus Adolphus College. Just a couple of points about this episode with Byron Nordstrom. First, during our conversation, there are spots when Byron's voice and mine overlap or out of sync. Also, Byron mentions two now-retired Gustavus colleagues, Tom Emmert and Lawrence Owen. Tom is Professor Emeritus of History, and Lawrence is Professor Emeritus of English. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, one country has been making considerable news for its plan for dealing with the virus. As a May 15th headline in the New York Times pointedly summed up, Sweden stayed open. A deadly month shows the risks. Rather differently, the Swedish author of an op-ed published that same day in the Times announced, I live in Sweden. I'm not panicking. In part because of my institution's Swedish heritage, Gustavus was founded by Swedish Americans and is named for a Swedish king, I've been eager to speak with someone who can help me understand Sweden's response to the virus. Who better than my longtime colleague Byron Nordstrom, Professor Emeritus in History and Scandinavian Studies at Gustavus. Nobody knows more about the history of Sweden and that of Scandinavia broadly, or about the Scandinavian heritage and history of Minnesota. A prolific and distinguished scholar who won the Faculty Scholarship Award at Gustavus, his book publications include The Swedes in Minnesota, The Dictionary of Scandinavian Studies, which he compiled and edited, The History of Sweden, and Scandinavia Since 1500, forthcoming in the second edition. He is also a past president of the Society for the Advancement of Scandinavian Study and was for 20 years editor of the Swedish American Historical Quarterly. More recently, until the pandemic forced its temporary closure, you could find him some days with his public history cap on, leading tours of the American Swedish Institute in Minneapolis. On a personal note, Byron was a generous and wise mentor to my wife, Kate Wittenstein, and me as newcomers to Gustavus, the History Department, and Minnesota. Byron, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm looking forward to, to, to hearing what you have to say. Um, you and I are both historians, and so we're interested in the past. Why don't we start with your past? How is it that you came to be interested in Scandinavian history, to become a professor at Gustavus? I assume more is involved than just having the last name Nordstrom. Well, the last name Nordstrom didn't, didn't play a role in it. I didn't grow up really thinking of myself as being Scandinavian or Swedish. Um, which may be surprising. I didn't belong to any organizations. I didn't learn how to do Swedish folk dancing. I didn't sing the national anthem on the 6th of June every summer. Um, it, it was really kind of accidental. I went to Lawrence College, then Lawrence University now in Wisconsin. And in my senior year, did an honors thesis on Swedish neutrality during the Second World War. And that plugged me into where I was going to go, I guess, in future studies in history, because from there it was six months in Sweden and then back to the University of Minnesota, where one of the five areas I had to designate uh, in my PhD program was modern Swedish history. Um, and 
I guess the rest of it is sort of history from there. I'm being I'm being pretty circumspect in doing this because a lot of it, I think, was just kind of accident. Well, I was a history major. Um, I started at Lawrence as a pre-med person, and I quickly discovered I wasn't going to make it in that. And then I wandered in and out of several other majors, English, religious philosophy, uh, and settled on history. We couldn't even declare a major at Lawrence until we were spring of sophomore year. So you were really kind of compelled to sample for the first uh, two years you were there. And maybe that's a good idea. I know a lot of places don't do that. A lot of students come in saying, this is what I'm going to major in, and they lock themselves into that. Uh, Lawrence wouldn't let you do that. Uh, and then probably I fell into history as, as much as anything because of two professors who I thought were really very good. One who taught me to write and the other who could engage people in a 70-minute lecture without a single note. Um, <laughs> the second one was a, a guy named Bill Cheney. He was a, an institution at, Castell- at Lawrence. He taught there for 49 years. Uh, and he was a medievalist with a with a photographic memory. Uh, you would go in to talk to this guy about a paper, and he would lean back in his chair and look at you and say, "Well, if you look on page thirteen of the February two thousand two issue of blah blah blah, you'll find the following." And then he would quote the article he was citing. Uh, and send you on your way. It was just uncanny, this guy. Anyway, I always tried to to do classes without notes as a result of this guy's influence. Um, I, I remember you, uh, sorry to interrupt, I remember you, that, that is advice you gave me early on. And because you may remember, I used to type out lectures, it was crazy. And I am happy to report to you within the last, you know, Five, seven years or so, I go in essentially without notes. It works. That's great. <laughs> I'm glad it was. Some days it sure didn't work for me. You know, you're going, oh my gosh, what am I going to talk about today? But then I'd pull out my slide projector and it would rescue me. I suppose my slide projector was the, the, uh, my video programs of the, of the past. You know, so I had a collection of slides that filled two great big four inch backbind three ring binders. I don't know what I'm going to do with them now because of course they're useless uh, and PowerPoint has replaced all of that. But uh, that, that was kind of my notes, those slides. Well, let's look at this. Let's talk about this. In some classes it worked. So anyway, this, the Swedish connection and the Scandinavian connections, not out of heritage, it's out of an uh, undergraduate interest that then blossomed into uh, a broader interest. Uh, and I've always been a kind of generalist. If somebody says, well, what's your narrow focus? Uh, I don't have one anymore. I, you know, you're forced to do one when you do a doctoral dissertation. Mine was on the Swedish trade union movement and Swedish foreign policy in the 1930s, yawn. Uh, and uh, after I got out of that, I tended to be much more interested in studying centuries or broad movements or big periods. I love teaching general courses and didn't particularly love teaching very narrow, specific ones. Did you, did you plan to, to or hope to teach at a place like Lawrence? 
Or was that yes. also just no, I always, that was my hope. I would have loved to have gone back there, which wouldn't have been a good idea at all. I don't think they should never hire their graduates. I don't think it gets too much inbreeding. Um, but I loved the place. I loved the environment that Lawrence provided. Uh, I loved the communities that that college provided. And I think that's one of the magical things about small liberal arts colleges. You go to the University of Wisconsin, where my wife went with 42,000 students and your community is maybe your dorm area, maybe your sorority, maybe a few of your majors. But other than that, uh, you don't have this kind of close-knit conversation. Uh, I remember Larry Owen in the English department always talked about the conversation that goes on at liberal arts colleges, and it may involve a faculty, it may involve students, it may involve students and faculty. Uh, There may be multiple conversations. One of my favorite parts of Lawrence, and I went there by pure accident, I applied to Stanford, which I didn't get into, Tom Emmert went instead. <laughs> and, uh, and and Lawrence was the place of uh, mother up the block recommended to me. She said, "Why don't you try there?" Drove over in the middle of the summer to look at parched grass and visit with some people, and decided it would be a good place. Um, anyway, they had a program called Freshman Studies. It started after the Second World War, and they still have this program. And it it's kind of like our I don't know what you're calling them anymore first term seminars, except that. All the freshmen are reading the same thing for when I started their entire freshman year in one of the classes they take. Uh, And so you have an entire freshman class of about 250 students who are at the same time reading exactly the same book uh, and writing essays on the same book and talking about the same book. And the faculty regardless of what your expertise is, they're teaching these books, which they may have no knowledge in whatsoever. We had to read The Uncertainty Principle, which is physics. And I think I had a theologian teaching that particular section. I have different teachers through the year, so you cycle through maybe half a dozen different professors as well. Uh, and and I, I, I tried to sell that to Laura, to Gus Davis. I, I didn't. I won only in the sense that the incoming class reads one book together, and then they sit on the lawn and talk about it before classes begin. But by and large, there isn't that ongoing conversation. And it, it's really, a, I think, a really important kind of binding agent uh, in an educational experience. Oh, you're, you're getting a little feedback, yeah. but we'll, we'll proceed. Once you once you found your way into Scandinavian history and, and, and your interest in Sweden, did you become more aware of or more interested in your own ethnic background? Um, <laughs> no, I didn't, at least not until much later. I, I don't do family history, for example, like my own family history. I've got a little bit of a family tree, but I've never been bitten by the desire to go back to Sweden and rub shoulders with second cousins three times removed and so on. Uh, I did go back to the place that my grandfather on my dad's side grew up. It's a little mill site uh, in the province of Vermland. Couldn't really trace my mother. My mother was a hybrid. She was part Swedish, but mostly Norwegian. She she and my dad grew up in Wilmer, which was a, a kind of polyethnic town of Germans and Dutch and Belgians and Swedes and Norwegians and Yankees. Uh, and 
she she and dad got married. I think they probably rode him out of town on a rail because she was the Norwegian and he was the Swede, you know, and you shouldn't do that. Uh, anyway, that's getting off your question. I, I, I find a lot of this, my ethnic background study, kind of hokey, which may sound strange when you think that I edited the Swedish American Historical Quarterly for 20 years, and that's about Swedish American history. Some people love to do it. It's just not something that I could get terribly interested in. I love immigration, and I love looking at sort of individual experiences and so on. but. Trying to, to tease out my own family's background from that was not something I have ever been terribly involved in. Maybe I should be, but I'm not. I think that's, I mean, for me, some of that slides into, you know, studies of heritage or even into um, antiquarianism in a way, which, which doesn't interest me either. You just mentioned immigration, and that is indeed one of your Swedish immigration, Scandinavian immigration, especially to Minnesota. What what how would you how would you sum up in, in a minute or two the essence of the Swedish immigrant experience to Minnesota? Well, you have to you know just spend four hours or four hours six hours watching all of John Troell's films based on Wilhelm Mulberry's immigrant series. That's the stereotype: the immigrant comes from the Rock Kingdom and finds agricultural paradise in Chisago County or Goodhue County or Carver County or down here in Nicollet County. Every Swedish immigrant just wanted to be a farmer and a housewife and raise kids in the American dream of rural agricultural success. Uh, And that works for a small percentage, some significant percentage of Swedish immigrants to Minnesota, but many of them Oh, gosh, what they ended up doing was purely accidental. Uh, Increasingly, most of them end up in cities, mainly Minneapolis and to some degree St. Paul, but also towns like Wilmer and St. Peter. And they aren't farmers, they're shopkeepers, and some of them become professionals, lawyers, dentists, doctors. You mentioned I tour guide at the American Swedish Institute to become a kind of fascination for me and a fixation for me. I, I'm going into withdrawal right now because of the fact it's closed and I can't go up there and spew about Swan Turnblad. But if you want to study a fascinating character who he doesn't typify the typical Swedish immigrant experience, he typifies the exceptional Swedish experience. He comes as a seven or eight year old with his parents and they settle in the village of Vesa, Minnesota, which is down near Red Wing and uh, Cannon Falls, kind of halfway in between. It's all Swedes who live there, but they come late, 1868. And so the land's all been taken. So the father in this family never has a farm, as near as I can tell. He has to work. He's a farm laborer, so he, he doesn't move up the ladder. But this young man, Swan, grows up in that town, gets what must have been a quite phenomenal education at a, a school that, as near as I can tell, was mostly conducted in Swedish. Uh, I, I just can't find a history of it. I wish I could. And then when he's 18... He moves to Minneapolis and he's learned, and I think 
of all people, Eric Norelius, who is the founder of Gustavus, is the guy who did this. Norelius, I think, he was his pastor down in Mesa. He spotted this kid as smart and wow. eager and hardworking, and he got him to learn how to set type the old-fashioned way, you know, backwards and upside down. So when Swan Turnblad, 18-year-old Swede, with no income to speak of, comes to Minneapolis, gets a room in a boarding house, and becomes a typesetter in a Swedish-language newspaper, he takes the first step on an absolutely phenomenal career. He becomes the richest Swedish newspaper man in America. He becomes the publisher and on and off the editor of a paper called Svenska Amerikanska Post and the Swedish American Post. And God, he's a member of the governor's honor guard, Burnquists in the Civil War, in the First World War. He's a founder of the Minneapolis Automobile Club. He belongs to every Yankee organization in the city, Shriner, Elk, Mason. He builds the grandest house on Park Avenue, in many ways, perhaps the most obnoxious house on Park Avenue. And he does it, I think, without ever borrowing a nickel. He pays for this house, as near as I can tell, kind of out of his wallet. Uh, or his checkbook. Uh, and, and right now I'm working on the travels of this guy in 1895. So he's just about 30 years old. His family, he, his wife, and his only child, his daughter, go to, go to Scandinavia. They go to Europe. They leave in May. They come back in August of 1895. This is the first of the trips they will make almost every two years until about 1905. So they'll make about half a dozen of these trips. They go everywhere in Europe, you can imagine. They're in Istanbul. They're in Paris. They're in London. They're in Belgium. They're in in Berlin. They're in Hamburg, Copenhagen. They visit the old family farm in southern Sweden. They visit his wife's family farm in western Sweden, almost on the Norwegian border. But other than that, they are these incredible sort of global travelers. They don't. I don't think they ever go anywhere other than Europe. But they see all of Europe from the Dardanelles to the top of Norway. And he writes about it. Uh, he's just a fa- absolutely fascinating character. And here, here he comes as this eight-year-old kid to this farm town in, in, in southern Minnesota. Uh, that's, you know, that's the ideal. That's, I guess that's the dream uh, that a lot of these immigrants, whether they were Swedes or Danes or Norwegians, or today the immigrants who are coming to Europe seeking a better life, he sure succeeded at it. That's a, yeah, that, that is absolutely fascinating. I love um, reading travel literature, so I'm a little envious of, of what, you, what you're up to. You know, this reminds me, speaking about him, there's just, first of all, thank you for addressing the stereotype, you know, the stereotype of the Scandinavian immigrant who comes to farm and is a farmer. Not true, um, as you point out. The other thing I think that people forget is that, um, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, there was a fair amount of prejudice against Scandinavian immigrants. Am I, am I right about that? And if so, you know, where was that coming from? I mean, one, some people, I think, assume, you know, was, Minnesota was sort of and always nice, right? virgin birth yeah. Scandinavia or something, right? But there were people. Right, exactly. So what, what, what was some of that? What was, I mean, and you, you mentioned Turnberg having, you know, sort of assimilating, powerful story about that. But what, what kinds of 
prejudice existed and on whose part um, toward, toward immigrants from Scandinavia? It's not something I've dealt much with. And there was a very small article on it in a little book about the Scandinavians in the Twin Cities. But compared to what some of the ethnic minorities and what we call today racial minorities face, Swedes and other Scandinavians faced rather little uh, animosity and prejudice and and so on. They, yeah, there were these sort of stereotypes. Oh, the dumb Swede, you know, the elbow bending Irish, and so on. And that criticism, mainly, I suppose, came from established white uh, residents, mainly of, of urban areas where these populations mixed. And of course, many of these first generation immigrants had like today, the worst jobs you can imagine. They were the launderers, the waitresses, the seamstresses, the street cleaners, the railroad track layers, the railroad yard workers, and so on. Uh, a wonderful little book to read right now, is, it's called Swede Hollow by a, a Swedish author. Uh, and it's been translated into English and is available, I think, through Minnesota Historical Press, Swede Hollow. That was an area in St. Paul, uh, down on Phelan Creek, and it was, I suppose, some people would use the word ghetto. It was a, a very crude, <laughs> primitive little area, streets that were unplatted, houses that were made in many cases out of scrap lumber, salvaged from railroad yards and elsewhere, but also an interesting multi-ethnic neighborhood. And the people that lived down there were certainly looked down upon for a long time by the people who lived up out of the hollow. And some of them were just immigrants who had come earlier and had risen economically. Uh, some of it came certainly from the Yankee establishment. I always, when I'm talking about Turnblad and his mansion on Park Avenue, all of his neighbors, virtually all of his neighbors, were from old established families. So names like Bell appear on uh, house names and so on. The guy across the street was a guy named Harrington. He was an established grain merchant in town that dealt with the Pillsburys and the Washburns. So this upstart on the street, Turnblad builds this great big house. And I, I, I've often wondered how he how well he was truly accepted. Uh, he did extraordinary things, but did they really include him uh, in the sort of the inner circle? Uh, and I suspect the answer is no, they didn't. He for right. one of the extraordinary things he did. You know, sweet, most Swedish immigrants were Lutheran when they came; some were not. Uh, and Turnblad was apparently went to the Lutheran Church in Vesa. Uh, but at some point around 1900, he started going to Westminster Presbyterian Church. And Westminster Presbyterian was the established Protestant church in downtown Minneapolis. Uh, it was when I was growing up. My parents and my family went there. And this has to have been a kind of social move on his part, again, to try to get in with this elite. So I think the elite certainly would pick on and set aside the immigrants in certain ways, as they certainly continue to do. That's all so fascinating. Uh, what, what, and I toured Sweet Hollow. We did a walking tour of St. Paul a few uh, I guess a couple of years ago, and yeah, so I finally got to, I'd heard so much about it. That's a great book recommendation. Thank you. What about, okay, let's turn to Sweden and the pandemic. Um, I, I, 
before coming to Gustavus, I Sweden to me was this place of you know cool progressive politics and culture, you know, anti-Vietnam War, and I always thought, wow, it's just it's one. And so when I was first reading about how they're approaching COVID nineteen, I thought, hmm, maybe you know the Swedes really know what they're up to. Do they? What what are your what are your thoughts about how they have as my understanding is it's a plan. It's not just sort of throw up our hands and well, let the virus. First thing there, there was actually keep in mind is the Swedes uh, let their epidemiologists run the show for the most part. And so this doctor, Anders Tegnell, was the guy who laid out the the policy or the plans for how they were going to deal with it. And they did not shut the country down. Schools, many schools remained open. Uh, You could go to your friendly restaurant in Stockholm and have dinner. You could sit in your outdoor restaurant and have a beer at night and mingle with the crowds. But on the other hand, things, I mean, things did shut down. Big crowd events didn't take place. So big amusement parks didn't operate. There's a big one in Stockholm. Museums closed down. Uh, so I think they they understood or that these physicians understood the potentials. The problem, and if you look at the statistics, uh, Sweden has lost about 4,500 people, 4,500 deaths so far. Uh, they have many more cap, many more cases than any other of the Nordic countries. But statistically, it's, it's, it's actually very sad in a sense. Most of the deaths, well over 4,000 of the roughly 4,500, have come in people or have been people over 70. So it's, it, it's a staggering sort of loss of senior citizenry. And part of this, not entirely, but part of this can be laid on privatization of senior residents and, and, and nursing homes that took place when uh, conservative governments ran the country. And they turned these facilities over to profit-making organizations that didn't pay much attention to the quality of those organizations. Uh, that's not entirely true, but it, it's, it, it is in part. And this, one of the things that the Swedes will admit today is, well, we really blew it in dealing with our senior citizens. Um, you know, it's like eight people under the age of 10 have died in the country and 4,000 over the age of 70 have died. Now, now why the... There's an interesting article in it. There's a new website called Nordic Info, which you can poke around in if you want. And it has a very interesting article in it about the Nordic response to COVID-19. And Denmark, Finland, Norway, Iceland, they, they closed the places down, or at least they rigorously restricted interactions among people. And their death rates are staggeringly, significantly lower than those that were, were uh, the case in Sweden. Uh, but the Swedes, why did the Swedes do this differently? And this is the question that this article tries to get at. And he thinks, the author's kind of strong, thinks that the Swedes have a, a kind of cultural difference. They are obedient um, they respect their government. Uh, they are law-abiding. And so if the government says, and the policy of the epidemiologist is be careful, wear masks, don't cough in people's face, uh, don't congregate in large groups, okay, we won't. They, they thought that would work. <laughs> I think. And yeah, it worked sort of. Uh, 
but it didn't work as well as they thought, I suspect. Right now, the head of the right-wing Sweden Democrat parties is calling for the resignation of Tegnell. He says, he's got to go. He blew it. Meanwhile, he's being supported by and large by the government. He's being yeah, supported by well. the head of the ministry that deals with government cabinet or ministry that deals with the health issues in the country. And and he's not he's not to blame. Uh, it was it was an honest effort in a sense. Another thing, interesting thing about Sweden is you'll find that it, it's not it's not political. You won't see the prime minister getting getting involved in this particularly. Daily reports came from Tegnell. They didn't come from Prime Minister Lofan. Uh, and that seems to still be the case. It's and it's hard to it's hard to wrap your head around in many respects. You compare this to Iceland, I think they've had eight deaths. I might have the number wrong, but they closed that place down like a brick. They're like a like a safe. Uh, they but the, but they only have to deal with three hundred fifty thousand people. You know, it's like dealing with population of Minneapolis and Edina or something like that in the entire country. So it's a little easier to restrict movement and people know each other. And right. it was interesting that in Iceland, they, a, a police officer and an epidemiologist were primarily in charge of Icelandic policy. And the police officer was he what he was primarily involved with was dealing with tracking people. So if you came down with this disease, they wanted to know exactly who you would come in contact with. And that was pretty easy to do if you're only dealing with a relatively limited population. And of course the airport shut down and nobody came in and nobody went out. Pretty much. I mean, they still have an occasional case. If you go to this tracking website that you can find, it lists every every country in the world and how many cases on a given day and so on. Uh, The the place that got zero was the Faroe Islands. I don't think there's been a single death on the Faroe Islands. Uh, But it's a hard enough place to get to, much less uh, get to say there. Anyway. Well, you, you, you remind us that, I mean, thank you. That, that, it's a very illuminating answer, and it helps me understand uh, why Sweden has been doing what it does. And you remind us that that we can't understand the approach of any country um, without understanding the history behind it, including the recent history. So this conservative turn in Sweden and its impact on uh, elder care, and also the culture. I mean, I think of our own, you know, as a U.S. historian, our own country with its ethos of individualism, for example clearly is, is, is influencing uh, how many people, you know, the, anti, the anti-lockdown protests, for example. Um, so I, I find that all extremely interesting and people will know uh, that. It's right about four years about ago. That. When was the last time yeah. you were in Sweden? How recently? We're itching to get back, but I'm not sure when that's going to happen. Is it, when, I've never been there. I want to go. But is it, um, I mean, <laughs> do Minnesotans really, people in Minnesota, do they have a kind of, mythologized or romanticized notion of Sweden? Is, it, is Sweden really oh, different God. from Minnesota, Scandinavian Minnesota? We're different. We're not like Minnesota. Uh, and it looks like Minnesota. And then there, there's the old argument. That's why the immigrants came here, because it looked yeah. like Minnesota, which is totally wrong. Um, it, it's... 
Sweden is a wonderful place. It's 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 a very friendly, easy place to visit. Uh, it's a hard place to become very good friends with anybody. Swedes tend to be, I think, very sort of very private in many ways. Family oriented. They they don't they're not glad handers. Um, they don't just. Uh, they, they find many, many times they think they find American tourists uh, kind of loud and obnoxious. They really picked on these these Swedish immigrants, these successful immigrants would come back. Um, they had a nickname for them, and I can't remember what it is, but they, they, they got very, very quickly got very tired of these sort of braggarts. They would come back and hold their successes under the noses of the Swedes. Um, and, and Scandinavia in general has this. Uh, modus operandi, if you will, or this ethos called Yantalog and the law of Yanta. It's based on a novel from the 1930s in which you don't brag. You don't think you're better than anybody else. You you don't try to stand out in the crowd. You're you're part of a community. And I, you know, maybe again, that comes back to how they dealt with COVID. They're part of a community. So they they work with each other rather than against each other. Um, but to visit it is to visit a place that really feels like, like America. It feels like yeah. the, the kind of the universal world culture that is generated by universal music and universal diet and so on that, that uh, sort of permeates at least a surface of everybody's culture. I want to go. I really want to go. I want to go even more. I talk to you one day. What about um, you know, what about our own college, <laughs> Gustavus? Well, Tell us it a was first about called. The uh, I, think, I think really it's called name, the Red Wing Academy because it started out in in his manse or his house in Red Wing, and then it moved to East Union, which is uh, kind of across the river, west of Jordan, uh, and today is just an intersection with a few houses and. A building which is the original building that was the college, and, and they changed the name to St. Hanskar's Academy. I've always, kind of, I've always kind of wished they kept that. Hmm? We should know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say we should note that it was and, founded. And Hanskar in, uh, was, a, was a missionary to uh, sort of Viking sorry, Age. So, yes, they changed the name to St. Hanskar. Uh, and it would have been an appropriate name. I, I always kind of wish we'd kept it and not changed it to Gustavus Adolphus because Hansker was a nice guy who wanted to make all these East Central people of Sweden into Christians and he succeeded and then as soon as he left they reverted to barbarism. But then I think of instead of being, you know, the Gusties, we would have been the Anskis or something like that. And that might have been hard to take, but we could have competed with St. Olaf and St. Thomas and St. John's. We're St. Ansgar's. Uh, instead, we named the place after a warrior king um, <laughs> who, in many respects, wasn't a very nice guy. Um, but, it, you know, history is, is can be highly selective. And I'm sure the uh, fathers of the institution thought, well, he's one of the great hero kings of Scandinavian history, or at least in Swedish history, let's rename the place after him. Um, now, I, I've never read exactly when, why did we pick this, but I suspect it's because he was such an important figure in Swedish history and in part of the history of the Thirty Years' War and the history of Protestantism, particularly Lutheranism in Northern Europe.
Right about the time that, that makes sense. I always, and I think, I think the name change occurred about maybe 1873 or something. About uh, 10 everybody years who's, who's a Gustavus alum, they should drive through East Union someday and see this white clapboard sided mm-hmm. building with a sign over it that says, I think it's something like original home of St. Ansgar's Academy. Underneath the siding is, is, is a log construction. Uh, and the whole school, that was the school. But then, of course, Old Main was the whole school for a long time uh, in the St. Peter location. What, what about, um, <clears throat> what about the, uh, while we're on this, talking about King? Uh, you yeah, just talked my I memory. Were you awarded something by King? One Carl, element of the Order of the Polar Star. Star. It's my an award that goes to non-Swedes who have done uh, like exemplary work in the name of Sweden. So I, I guess it was made for, given to me be, because of my work with Gustavus and my work with the Swedish American Historical Society and Scandinavian Studies and all this other stuff. And, and it, it was a great honor. So I have this wonderful uh, Metal that I can wear around my neck at formal occasions, and a signed thing from the king, both of which are hanging in the wall on the wall of this study. And I, I think I've worn the medal once in public, and that's when I got it. <laughs> and now it's in a little sort of window box with a glass cover on it. And I have to give it back. Oh, I don't have to give it back. When I die, it's supposed to go back to the sleep has to be sent back. I, I don't know how many people who get these uh, ever send them back. But they've been awarded to wow. uh, a, a number of Swedish Americans, in, including Bruce Karsted at the American Swedish Institute. Uh, and then they have a different medal that goes to uh, Swedes, who native Swedes, who may do similar things in a foreign country. So I think Roland Thorstensen has received the um, Swedish equivalent, Swedish citizen equivalent of this uh, award. Well, congratulations. Uh, and Roland, you mentioned Roland Thorstensen. He was, well, uh, he's really the founder. Were, Roland were essentially the founders of the Scandinavian me, Studies program. And he hired Roger McKnight right? shortly thereafter. So he got a Scandinavian historian named me, and he got the second person in language and and literature and Roger and Roland. Roland is the guy who did all the legwork. You know, I was over there in, in the history department with kind of a toe in the Scandinavian studies department and teaching a course or two every semester that fit into their program. So it, it, it's it's Roland's program. And, and today I think that he is, he, his legacy is um, your, your colleague, Glenn Cranking and, and then, um, the two people teaching, three people right now, I think, teaching Swedish. Uh, it must be one of the most highly enrolled foreign languages uh, at Gustavus. And I think it is it, it is the leading undergraduate program in small among small colleges in the country. And for almost the only one left, in a sense, across the country. I was going to ask you about that, and I know, I, I think from what Glenn Cranking is, my colleague, is, and, and your former student, you mentored Glenn, has said yes. And uh, for listeners, uh, please know we have a thriving Scandinavian studies program uh, uh, with all kinds of interesting uh, events. The Out of Scandinavia program, for example, um, is, is just one. Byron, I wish we could keep talking. I would love to. But before we go, one last question for you. So. 
I'm not from Minnesota. I didn't attend Gustavus. That's all true. Why should well, I care you're about an intrinsically curious person. Curious people can be interested in all kinds of things. Uh, and Scandinavia is a fascinating area. And I was just thinking we passed these questions out to me before I understand about this. And to me, Scandinavia has been a fascinating model, uh, a kind of microcosm that can be overlaid into larger situations. So if you want to look at the role of small states in international relations, Scandinavia, any of the Scandinavian states can be plugged into that issue. If you want to look at the rise of a great power and the fall of a great power, Sweden is a wonderful example of that. And it's it's a kind of manageable unit to look at. And there are lots of parallels. So Sweden rises and falls in the 16th and 17th and early 18th century, compare it to France, compare it to Spain, compare it to England, maybe compare it to the United States. Um, so there's just that sort of, a, it's an interesting area to, to look at. And, and well, I guess that's the answer. I agree. I mean, I, you know, there's so there's a currently it's coming to Gustavus, but as I said, even before, just thinking about Sweden uh, and, 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 and mysteries, murder mysteries, and, film primarily, but also design <laughs> and food. You know me, and, and you know, I again, I wish we could keep talking. I miss we had, we used to have such great conversations in our old building on campus, uh, which was ugly and horrible. But uh, we would the history department, we'd sit around and you and. Kate would be smoking, that was okay then, and uh, well, not now, but, and uh, we have wonderful conversations about all kinds of things as we are, as we are here. Um, thank you so much. I hope everyone will rush out and buy your books uh, on Sweden That's and good. Scandinavia, thank you, Greg. It's been read a pleasure. them and learn, and uh, we'll see you back Bye-bye. at the American Swedish Institute, hopefully before too long.